Good morning. Let's pray together. Um, Father, we, we want to see Jesus this morning in all of his glory. And as we see him high and lifted up, we want to see uh, ourselves in that light and have that light reveal who we are and who you have called us to be. Lord, we want uh, our vision of Christ to be transformative. So, Lord, um, I know that's, that's a big ask, but we, we know that you can, and we know that that's your desire, that as we, as we turn our gaze upon him, that our, ga- that our, our, our lives are transformed by that, uh, by that vision of him. So do that for us this morning by your spirit, uh, and we'll give you... We are nearing the end, I guess. We have a couple of chapters left in Galatians. We embarked on this study... Uh, uh, a few months ago, um, as the as the tail end of our um, our our vision series, our vision we we determined it would be a good idea to do some teaching through a, through one uh, one book of uh, of the Bible, through one of Paul's epistles. So we we chose Galatians and have been in that book. Um, it's been uh, it's been instructive for me. I don't know about you. Um, I, I've uh, I've enjoyed this time. I'm gonna I'm gonna miss Galatians when we're done. Um, we're in chapter five, as you as you probably uh, surmised from from Brandon's reading. Thanks for reading to this morning, Brandon. Um, so if you have a Bible and have turned there, um, that's where we're going to get started. Uh, if you're with us next week, you know that um, I kind of stepped a little bit on where Chris ended up. He he ended with verse one of chapter five. Now he and I had a little bit of uh, a little text discussion about where it would best go in terms of its placement, um, and decided that maybe it's a better uh, was a better ending for his sermon than perhaps a beginning for mine. Um, it's really a transitional verse, if you if you think about it. Verse 1 of chapter 5, that says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. It serves really as a conclusion for what Paul has just said. Um, but I think in a way it also serves as a transition and a, and a lead into what he's going to say next. So it's a, it is a very transitional uh, verse. Paul, in his usual pattern, has come to the end of um, his doctrinal study, if you will. He spent some time talking about his own personal experience with the Galatians and, uh, and otherwise. He, he, he spent some time talking about the Galatians' personal experience with him. Um, he dove deep into, um, into Scripture. To, to prove his point, and he's doing what he typically does at the end of his letters. He's beginning to turn the corner, and he's going to get practical. He's going to talk uh, not so much about doctrine now, but about implications of doctrine, application of doctrine, if you will. Um, and if you remember, again, if you were here last week, um, Pastor Chris painted what for me was a pretty vivid word picture. He, he, he gave us this, this vision of, of Paul sitting at a table with his scrolls of Genesis and Isaiah spread out before him and, and, and doing this study uh, that we've seen um, that him talk about um, and, and, and penning this letter. Um, as I was thinking about it, I got a, uh, and looking at the text for this morning, I got a little bit different picture. Um, we know um, both textually and historically that Paul didn't actually do much of the actual writing of his letters that much of what he wrote was actually dictated to someone else. So the picture I get is of, is of Paul, um, again, sitting at the table, but instead of sitting there with his scrolls, he has the scrolls in front of him, and, but instead of him doing the writing, he's, he's speaking as he's, as he's thinking through all of these different issues that he's talking about. And, and my picture this morning is that he's pushing back from the table. 
that he's, he's thought through all of these things, both from experience and from, and from the Bible, and now he's, he's getting a little bit fired up. What we're going to see this morning is what I believe is the passion of a pastor's heart. He's writing to, as he's called them, his brothers, his, his little children. And quite honestly, Paul's a little bit fired up about it. He's, he's concerned for his people, and that concern is, is leading him to, to be emotional. We're going to see emotion in Paul's, I mean, and if you listen to the reading this morning, I think he already got glimpses of that. Um, this word that begins uh, verse 2 uh, is, is translated in the ESV as look. Um, it's, it's, it's supposed to be an attention grabber. And again, that's why I see Paul kind of pushing back from the table. He's, he's going to begin to pace up and, up and down, back and forth across this room where he's, where he's doing this dictation um, of this letter. And, uh, and he begins with this word, look. Um, in Thayer's lexicon, it says that at the be- when this word appears at the beginning of sentences, it is as the utterance of one who wishes that something should not be, neglect- should not be neglected by another. He wants the, the readers of this letter, if, 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 they've begun, if their minds have begun to wander, he wants to bring them back to focus. He says, look. And then he has some things he wants to say to them. And he begins with, um, with some warnings. I'm calling these warnings for, for brothers. He's been writing this letter to those he calls brothers and sisters. And he has some warnings for them. And they're, and they're quite serious. He begins with this. This is verse 2. He says, look. I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. When he talks about accepting circumcision, he's, he's talking about accepting it somehow as a means of gaining favor with God. He's completely debunked that notion throughout the beginning of the letter that somehow by this, um, by this act of, of law-keeping, we can gain favor with God. He's completely said that's entirely impossible. You can't do it. But he's saying if you attempt to do it, if you accept circumcision as some, some means of perhaps gaining favor with God, then you lose the advantages that come in being, uh, of being in Christ. You know, and he's already enumerated some of these. If you flip back just a page to chapter 2, he wrote this in verses 20 and 21. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's, that's an advantage that we have gained life in Christ, true life in Christ. And he says, if you accept circumcision, if you try to, to adopt circumcision as some means of gaining favor with God, you're going to lose that advantage. Or uh, again, in chapter 3, um, uh, starting in verse 13, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Saying, if you, if you accept circumcision, you're going to lose that advantage of being in Christ. Or, or this, this is also chapter 3, um, picking up in verse 26. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. He says, if you continue to go down this path of, of believing that somehow you have to add to the gospel, you have to 
take upon yourself circumcision as a means of gaining favor with God, you're going to lose the advantages that came through Christ, life in Christ, the inheritance that comes in Christ and through Christ, sonship that comes through being in Christ. He says, you're going to lose all of those advantages. I'm just warning you, my brothers, that that's going to happen if you continue down this path. So look, pay attention. And he says this in verse 3, I, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. person reading that should, should just, just, bells should start to go off in their heads. Circumcision, and somehow you now are obligated to, if you think that is going to gain you favor with God, now you have to keep the whole law in order to gain favor with God. And of course, he's already told us that that's not possible. Again, back in chapter, uh, chapter 3, um, Start picking up in verse 10, he wrote this, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Saying, if, if, you, think you're gonna, if you think accepting circumcision, if you think becoming circumcised is somehow going to gain you favor with God, well, it's really going to do the opposite. It's going to put you under the demands of the law in its entirety. And I've already told you, you can't do it. You can't keep it. And he said this in, uh, in, in verse 21 of chapter 3, uh, If the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Of course, the point is that there is no such law. There's no such law that can, that can give righteousness, that can give one a right standing with God, because we are all... But if you accept circumcision, then you're, you're obligating yourself to everything else that is in the law. And then he makes these statements in verse 4. Sobering statements. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have, you have fallen away from grace. And again, that's the antithesis. It's, it's the, the, the con contrary-wise to everything we have seen in what Christ has done for us. To be severed from Christ is to be severed from, as he has said already, the, the advantages that come from being in Christ. We lose the life that comes in Christ. We lose the, lose the inheritance that comes through Christ. We lose the sonship, the daughtership, the being made part of the family that comes through Christ. We're severed from him, cut off. He's no longer ours, and we are no longer his. And he says, you've fallen away from grace. I, 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 when I was titling this section, um, Warnings for Brothers, I, I was almost tempted to put like quotation marks around the word brothers. Because if all these things that Paul is saying about these folks who are accepting circumcision are true, then I, I, I can't, it's hard to say that they truly are brothers. Now, we, we, jump, just jump ahead just a little bit. He says in, in verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. So, so Paul is optimistic about their future. He has confidence in them that they're, that they're not going to, they're not going to follow through going down this wrong path. But he's saying that if they do, if they continue on the path that they are beginning to accept, this idea that somehow they can add to the gospel, somehow that circumcision is going to make them more acceptable with God, he says, you, you're, you've fallen away. You've fallen away. 
he puts it this way, um, Paul also writing in, in Romans chapter 11. He writes this. This is 11, Romans 11 verse 22. He says this, Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Again, we see these notes of warning. God stands ready to be kind to these brothers, but they are putting themselves at, at serious risk. Uh, uh, reminded me of what um, John wrote in his first letter. This is from John cha- 1 John chapter 2. I think this would apply to these, the ones that continue down this path. It's not that they are going to somehow lose their salvation. Is that they were never saved in the first place. They are showing by their actions that they were never, well, this is what, this is what John says. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. So this continuing to accept this, this false gospel, this idea that somehow favor with God can be gained through this physical act. Those who continue on that path as they are severed from Christ, as they, have fall, as they fall away from grace, they are just demonstrating that they were never his in the first place. Um, so, dire warnings, but, but uh, beginning in verse 5, he writes this, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. So he's not leaving them in their dire circumstances. I, I appreciate that. I don't know about you, but I appreciate that about Paul, that he doesn't leave them there. He, he lays out this stark, dire warning, and then he gives them this, this word of hope. There's this contrast here. There's hope that comes by faith in contrast to this hope that, that they believe somehow comes in, in and through law-keeping. It's, it's hope that comes, as he says, through the Spirit, by faith. It's not, it's not through the flesh that it comes, but it's through the Spirit, and it's by faith and faith alone. And this is what he writes we're gonna, as you, when we get to the end of the, chap, end of the book. He's going to write this in verse 12 of chapter 6. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. So they're not... They're not, it's not by faith that they are operating, it's, it's through fleshly means that they think they can gain favor, favor with God. And then he writes this, and this is a little bit of a surprising statement based on all the things he's had to say so far. He says, for in Christ, uh, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. For me, when I read that, it brought me up a little bit short. I said, Paul, haven't you been saying now for five chapters or for four chapters and into chapter five that circumcision's bad, circumcision's bad, circumcision's bad? And now he says, well, it's, it's really neutral. It's not circumcision or uncircumcision that's the issue. Neither one of them counts for anything. Uh, there, there's a story in, in Acts um, when, when Timothy joins Paul's team, uh, Paul has asked Timothy to become circumcised. Timothy had a, a Jewish mother but a Greek father, and he was going to go on the ministry trail with Paul, and Paul asked Timothy to be circumcised. Again, that seems like it's maybe a little counter to what he's been teaching and preaching here. 
But we have to think about, we have to think about motivation, the, the reason for it. It wasn't because he wanted Timothy to somehow keep the law. Uh, I think we see in the context of Acts 16 that the reason for it is because, um, well, it says, because of the Jews. He asked him to be circumcised because of the Jews. So it wasn't because he wanted him to be a law keeper. It was because he was attempting to remove a possible stumbling block in their ministry. He didn't want there to be some sort of stumbling block between the, the Jews that Paul still desperately wanted to reach with the gospel. So he asked Timothy to be circumcised. I think that's an example of what he's saying here. It's, 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 circumcision isn't, at the end of the day, it's not the issue. It, it, it's not the physical act that's the issue. It's the heart condition, so often true. It's the heart condition that's the issue. It's the motivation behind the, the act. If you're, if you're accepting circumcision because you think somehow it's going to make you, uh, uh, to give you favor with God, if, you, if it's somehow adding to the gospel, if you think you're going to be justified by the law, counted righteous because of the law, then, then you're on the wrong side of it. But it's not circumcision or uncircumcision that counts for anything. It's only faith working through love. There's the title for this morning's sermon, by the way. Faith working through love. That is, that's the main thing. In fact, he says it's, it's the only thing. It's, it's faith that is in action and is empowered by love. It's, it's faith that, is, that, is, that is, takes the love of God and, and channels it to other people. It's faith working through and working in love. That's what really counts. It's not the circumcision at the end of the day isn't the issue. It's whether or not you believe that you are justified by faith and faith alone. And if that faith then is working in you and through you to produce love. We're going we're gonna to talk more about that later. Paul's going to come back to that point. And then he, he turns another corner. And again, I, I picture him kind of pacing back and forth across this room, and now he's starting to get a little bit fired up. He begins to think not just about his brothers, but he's now thinking about the ones who are leading them astray. And that's where he really gets uh, pretty, pretty fired up, as I said. He writes this. He says in verse 7, uh, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? It's this, um, this athletic metaphor that Paul is, uh, is so enamored with. He uses these athletic uh, metaphors a lot. It's the picture of, of running a race. And this word hindered actually comes from a root that means to cut off, which seems to appear several times in this passage. We are, we are severed from Christ. Now again, he's saying that, uh, that the ones who are keeping them from obeying the truth, who are hindering them, are somehow cutting them off. The picture is of, of um, I don't know, two, two sprinters who are running down the track and one of them veers out of his lane and blocks the other one, keeps him from making progress, keeps him from getting to his goal, keeps him from getting to his destination. He says, who is hindering you from being obedient to what you know is the truth, what you were taught, the true gospel, not this false gospel, if there could be such a thing as another gospel? Who is hindering you? Who is standing in your way? Who is, who is cutting you off from making progress in the gospel, who is cutting into you, quite literally. Then he says this, the persuasion is not from him who calls you. The persuasion, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. This, this, this case that's being made by these Judaizers, 
that somehow in order to be, to, to be, for God to be pleased with you, that you have to accept this circumcision right? That's not coming from God. The one who called you is not giving you this message. This is a, a false message, not coming from the one who has called you to himself, talking about, about God. Just this is not from him. This, this, this attempt to persuade you of some other means by which you can gain favor with God, that is not from God. God's not asking of that of you. All God is asking of you is faith, working through love. That's the only thing that counts. And then he uh, uses this um, it, it's a pretty well-known uh, proverb, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. I think we see there that Paul's concern is that this false teaching is somehow beginning to permeate the churches. That it started as just a small thing. Maybe it was just a few people, and now it's beginning to make its way in and through and around, and it's becoming part of who they are, part of their culture. Part, it's, it's, it's invading them, if you will. And he's concerned about that. He's, he's saying, we need to get rid of that leaven. That leaven is, is leavening your lump, and you need to get rid of it. It's, it's leading you in the wrong direction. And then we already saw in verse 10 that he has this vote, this... Um, this uh, note of confidence, verse 10, he says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. It's significant to me that he says his confidence is not in them. He doesn't say, I have confidence in you. You're going to come around to the right conclusion. I, I believe in you. <laughs> no, he says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. That the truth is going to make its way. The truth is, gonna, is going to have its sway in the final analysis. The confidence is in the Lord that this false view, this false gospel, which really is no gospel at all, you're not going to adopt it, finally, which I think is why he continues to be able to call them brothers, even in the, in the face of these dire warnings about what could happen were they to continue down this path. And then he, as I called this section, it's condemnation for these troublers. He's, he's confident both that they are going to take another view. He's also confident that the one who's troubling them will bear the penalty, whoever he is. I, I, he says that a couple of times. Whoever, Galatia, he went and did his, did his ministry there and, and planted the churches. Now he's returned back to Antioch. It, it, it seems that he's not really sure who it is. He's just heard that someone is there. And he is speaking these words of condemnation on this person who is troubling them, who is hindering them, who is cutting them off. He is confident that that person is going to bear the due penalty. And, that, and then in verse 11, he takes this, um, seems like a little bit of a rabbit trail, um, maybe uh, going off just a little bit. He writes this in verse 11, but if, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed seems as if he's heard that there are, one of the things that these Judaizers are saying is that, well, Paul says this too. You know, this isn't just our idea. This isn't just what we say. This is what Paul says. And he says, well, if I'm still preaching circumcision, which, uh, make no mistake, he certainly would have. Before Paul came to Christ, he would have, he would have vehemently he would, have, he would have forcefully preached circumcision. He doesn't do that anymore. And he's saying, if somehow they're saying that I'm still preaching circumcision as a, as a means of gaining favor with God, as a means of being counted righteous before God, well, then 
what was all that persecution I, I went through when I was in Galatia? We, we, um, um, if you go back and read chapters 13 and 14 of Acts, you can see that when Paul was making his missionary journey through Galatia, he, he got a lot of persecution. Every time he went to a town, he'd go to the synagogue and, and try to convince the Jews, and they uh, most often would reject him. Reject him to the point that at one point in Lystra, they dragged him out of the city and tried to stone him to death. So, yeah, persecution. And the reason he was being persecuted is because he was telling them that they didn't have to keep the Jewish law anymore. That Gentiles were accepted by God. Uh, so, he, I mean, he's, he's saying, well, if, if that's true, if what these Judaizers, say, Judaizers are saying is true, and I'm still commending circumcision as somehow a means of gaining favor with God, then I don't know what all that persecution was about. I don't know what that stoning was about. That certainly wasn't what I preached. And he says, in that case, the, the, uh, the offense of the cross has been removed. The, in other words, the, the true gospel is then, is then watered down. If it is through the cross and through the cross alone, then if that's the true gospel, as he said in, uh, in chapter 2, then if I'm somehow preaching circumcision is still something that's valid, and that waters down that gospel, makes that gospel um, not a gospel at all. Uh, this is what he writes in 1 Corinthians. This is um, 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 1, right at the beginning of his, book, of his letter to the Corinthians, about the offense of the cross. If I can find it. Yeah, Paul writes this. Um, Picking from verse 18, he says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who own. He says, if somehow I'm still preaching circumcision, then that offense of the cross is, is removed. It's somehow invalidated. Of course, that's not true. That's not what he preaches. He preaches that it is through the cross and through the cross alone, through faith, working through love, that we are made right with God. And then he, I, I guess, I mean, he reaches the peak of his emotional... Uh, appeal here. Um, verse 12, I wish those who would unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Strong words. Very strong words. It's interesting to me, um, there's, there, there's, a, there's a, a Greek root um, cognate, ooh, fancy, between the word here, um, that's, that's translated emasculate, and the word that was translated hindered back in verse 7. They both have the same Greek root of being cut off. They come from the same root word. I, I wonder maybe if he's, there's maybe just a little play on words here for Paul. He's saying, they want to cut you off. I wish they would cut themselves off. Um, uh, a figurative act. Uh, it's as if he's saying, if you're so enamored with circumcision, why don't you just go all the way? Uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a hard word. It's a tough word. It's, it's, it's difficult to grapple with, but 
you know, you get to think of the context. Think of what it is that's at stake here. Think about the warnings that he gave to his brothers. Their very lives are at stake. There are people that have come in that are trying to hinder them, trying to cut them off from their access to the true gospel. And he's saying, I wish those people would cut themselves off instead. Um, he's, he's, there are these people that are troubling, as he called them back in, in chapter 4, they're his little children. This is the passion of a pastor's heart. He's, he's, he's concerned for them. And his concern boils over in this statement that he makes about those who are troubling them. It reminded me a little bit of what, uh, what Jesus had to say. This is from Luke chapter 17. Uh, Jesus said this um, to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Jesus is, is wishing for the, for the death penalty, for drowning, for those who would lead his little ones astray. And Paul is saying something similar, maybe not, not nearly as extreme. He's not saying that they should die. He's saying that they should be, they should be cut off perhaps literally and figuratively. So he warns these brothers, these little children that he is so concerned for. He, he declares these words of, of condemnation on those who would lead them astray, who would hinder them, who would cause them trouble. And then he turns back to where he started at the beginning of the chapter with freedom. Comes back to freedom says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. He, he circles back, if you will. He's already told us that faith works through love. And now he's telling us that freedom is expressed through love. He told us that faith works through love, and now he's telling us that freedom is expressed through love. I call this section freedom for lovers. Freedom for lovers, because those who are truly free are those who love. That's what Paul is saying here. You are called to freedom, brothers, but don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through your love, serve one another. And again, it reminded me of, this, uh, of, of what Timothy did. Back in Acts chapter 16, Timothy was under no obligation to be circumcised. He could have exercised his Christian freedom and said, Paul, you know what? I'm not doing that. I don't have to. I don't need to. Not doing it. Why did he do it? He did it as an act of love. As I said, to, to remove the opportunity for or, or the potential for uh, a stumbling block, he gave up his freedom for the sake of others, to serve others. This is, um, this is from Romans chapter 14. Paul writes this, Therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking 
in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. You know, I think, I don't know if it's uniquely American, but it's pretty American that we have our rights, you know, God-given rights, if you will, given to us by the Constitution, if nothing else. We have our rights, and I am going to defend my rights, and I don't, I don't care what the impact is on anybody else. You know, I'm going to do what's right for me. You know, whatever else happens to anyone else, uh, it's not my concern. And Paul is calling for the opposite here, calling for the, for, the, for the polar opposite of that here. He's saying, yes, you are free in Christ, but your freedom is, is, is somehow a, a, a kind of slavery. It's, it's ironic, isn't it? He says, don't use your freedom as an opportunity, opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. That verb serve comes from the same word that we get the word doulos, which is a bondservant, also, many times translated as slave. What Paul is saying here, I think, is that we're giving up our bondage to the law and taking on bondage to love. I guess it was the great um, theologian Bob Dylan who said, you got to serve somebody, right? You're going to be in bondage to someone or something. Paul's saying the choice is bondage to law or bondage to love. It's ironic. By faith, working through love, we become law keepers. I mean, that's what Paul says, right? He says, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So again, he, he spent all this time saying, you don't have to keep the law. You don't have to keep the law. You don't have to be circumcised. And then he says, circumcised, well, it's really not that big a deal. It, it, it doesn't really matter one way or another. And now he's saying, oh, by the way, when you love, when you exercise your freedom and love, you're going to be actually keeping the law in its entirety, Something you couldn't do if you tried to do it on your own. The whole law is fulfilled in this one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So by faith, working through love, we become law keepers. Not, not to gain God's favor, but because we've already gained it through what Christ has done for us, through the cross, through the Spirit, by faith. So here in the final analysis, at least of this part of the passage, Paul is saying that true freedom is for, for lovers. It's for those who love. It's to those who, because they have been loved, loved in return, as John says in 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. Self in, in bondage to love, not in bondage to the law. Paul writes this. This is Romans, um, from Romans 6. Picking up in verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. That's the transformation that's been made. Again, 
Dylan, you got to serve somebody. You're going to serve sin or serve righteousness. You're going to serve the law or you're going to serve love. Paul says, you should serve love. And then he ends with this. This is uh, in verse 15, this final warning, really a, a reality check, if you will. He says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. I think that's the final, uh, the, final path, the final part of the path if you continue down this false path. If, you, if, you, if, you want to ex- if you're going to try to exercise your freedom in a way that is not colored by, influenced by love, you end up biting and devouring each other, consuming one another. I'm, I'm not sure what the exact circumstances were in Galatia that led him to write that. I think he's heard that through all of this turmoil that's going on, through all this strife that's coming up, going on because of the, the influence of these Judaizers, that there is there's something going on that may lead to this kind of action, this biting and devouring. And, and that some people are saying that they're going to be able to use their freedom in a way that is detrimental to the body. It's a, it's a warning. It's a reality check. This idea that our, the misuse of our freedom can actually cause injury to one another, something we need to be aware of. So um, I'm going to leave you with this. I, I didn't. I, I, this is a this is a game time decision. Um, uh, the uh, the Reese's and Shelly and I went to to dinner yesterday. Fortune cookie in his restaurant, and I got a fortune cookie at the end, which of course you know typical. I cracked open my fortune cookie, and it and it and it, this is the fortune. Uh, it is impossible to please everybody. Please yourself first. Um, first thing that occurred to me is that um, the people at the fortune cookie factory are, are listening to too much uh, early 70s music. Sounds like a lot like a Ricky Nelson song. Anybody? Nobody? Okay, you're with me. Um, and, and the second thing that occurred to me is that is entirely antithetical to what Paul is saying in this passage this morning. That we should not seek to please ourselves first. We should seek to serve others and thereby please God so let me leave you with this. This is, uh, I'll give Paul the final word from Philippians chapter 2. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Would you pray with me? Father, what, um, what Paul calls us to, what you have called us through, through through his letter, is something that we are unable to accomplish on our own. We are so inclined, so uh, we, are, uh, we so tend to try to want to do things on our own. As if somehow by our own striving and working, we can somehow be pleasing to you. And we know that's, that's an impossibility. That as fallen and frail humans, we're, we're going we're gonna to fail. We have no way to be uh, pleasing in your sight uh, apart from the finished work of Christ on the cross. 
So, Lord, I pray this morning that you would um, convict our hearts, that you would point out to us those areas where we are so self-sufficient, so that we don't keep the law that is summarized in that one word, love your neighbor as yourself. Lord, um, I pray for myself and for my friends here that you would continue to transform our hearts. And in so doing, not because we are gaining favor by, by these acts of love, but because we are demonstrating that we have received your favor, that these acts of love flow out and through us. Lord, give us faith that works through love. And, and, and help us to use that as a means of, of being servants to one another, of giving to one another. Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, hard words this morning, and yet words that uh, no, we need to hear, we needed to be reminded of. So um, continue to use those words in us and through us to, to change us more into the image of Christ. And we'll thank you for that in Christ's name.